This week's TribCast is sponsored by Lone Star College. Lone Star College provides affordable, world-class education and contributes nearly $3 billion to our local economy. Visit lonestar.edu for more. And the Texas Dental Association. TDA advocates for all Texas dentists and dental patients. For more information, visit tda.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for March 3rd, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And this week we are joined by Ross Ramsey, Executive Editor. Howdy. Politics Reporter Patrick Svitek. Hello. And Higher Education Reporter Kate McGee. Great to be here. Thank y'all for joining us. So this week, the start of this week, we were all waiting to see what a big announcement would be from Governor Greg Abbott. He'd been teasing it for several days on social media, and uh, he was not under-promising. He declared at a Lubbock Mexican food restaurant on Tuesday that Texas was 100% reopening. Patrick, you are the, you are the person who was watching this for us, and you wrote kind of our main news article. Can you Talk us through a little bit about that press conference and, and what it is exactly he has ordered for the state. Yeah, the two big decisions that he announced this, this news conference were that he was lifting the statewide mask mandate and that he was allowing all businesses in the state to reopen at 100% capacity. Uh, both of these decisions go into effect uh, at midnight uh, on next Wednesday, March 10th. Um, and he said that now is time. Now is the time to open Texas 100. Um, he, you know, cautioned Texans against, you know, assuming that the virus is gone, but said he just doesn't believe that at this point that state statewide mandates uh, are needed to fight the virus. So that was that was the gist of his presser. So I want to go dig into just kind of what the details of this announcement were. You talked about the lifting of the mask mandate and some of these things. Uh, I mean, basically, we're talking about everything here, right? Sporting events, concerts. You know, uh, basically, if you run a business now, you can operate that business without any restrictions, right? You can. I mean, this was a pretty sweeping announcement, um, and we're still processing it uh, the day after. But um, like I said, a pretty sweeping announcement was more sweeping than I expected and basically allows businesses across the state to operate how they see fit. So if they want to continue to require masks, for example, continue to socially distance tables at a restaurant, for example, they can do that. If they don't want to do any of that, if they want to literally go back and operate their restaurant um, how they did pre-pandemic, they're now free to do that. Um, you know, while Abbott emphasized uh, that restaurants can continue to do things like require masks, it remains unclear. And to me, it looks like it's non-existent whether there's any enforcement mechanism there. Obviously, under the statewide mask mandate, um, you know, if someone uh, was failing to wear a mask in a public place, they would get uh, they were supposed to get a, a written or verbal warning from law enforcement. And if they did it a second time, they're supposed to get a fine of up to two hundred fifty dollars. And then if they did it subsequent times, they continued to get fined. And so there was, you know, an actual punishment in that statewide mask mandate for people who failed to comply. So while Abbott is saying that restaurants and, and businesses more broadly can continue to do things like require masks, um, it doesn't look like there's really any you know, legal uh, course of action for a restaurant um, if they're requiring masks and someone comes in not wearing a mask. They can obviously um, turn away, um, but beyond that, it's not like they 
really, at least as I interpret it, you know, call the cops and, and actually have a, a punishment for this. Right. And the area where there was some wiggle room here was allowing for areas of the state where at least 15% of the hospital beds are occupied by coronavirus patients to impose some sorts of rules, right? But as you said, those rules can't really be enforced. So it's unclear whether that would have much of an impact. Yeah, I'm very fascinated to see how this works out in practice, um, because he did lay out that, that scenario in which local governments can impose their own COVID restrictions. Um, but he put a pretty strict framework on it. He said in that circumstance, um, you know, a county judge cannot jail anyone for not following their orders, for, for following their orders. They cannot impose penalties for failure to wear a mask. And if those local re restrictions are triggered, um, they still have to operate businesses at at least 50% capacity. And so, you know, I'm trying to think here of like hypotheticals here that, that, you know, a local government may be confronted with, um, you know, for example, we were talking the other day about, you know, sporting events, um, you know, say there is some, you know, some hospital region with a major Metro in Texas um, where, you know, there is pro sporting going on and uh, you know, this 15% threshold is crossed and the County judge is allowed to take back some power even if they wanted to impose, you know, capacity restrictions on a, you know, a stadium or something like that, uh, the lowest they can go is 50% capacity. And so Abbott is giving a little power back to the local officials in that scenario. Um, but it is, is there are a lot, a lot of caveats, I think. Right. Right. Ross, I want to kind of read a few stats here. The, this, this order, this decision came out uh, yesterday, March 2nd. Uh, it obviously won't go into effect until a week from today, but on March 2nd, there were 271 new deaths reported in the state from the coronavirus. There were 6,613 new confirmed cases. And on that day, 5,644 Texans were reported hospitalized for the coronavirus. We are moving into a new phase. Those numbers, you know, I should note are all pretty much improvements from, you know, what we had a month ago or earlier this year, things do seem to be moving in the direction, but we're definitely not out of the woods yet in the coronavirus. Another stat is I think uh, fewer than 7% of Texans have received the vaccine yet. Were you surprised, Ross, that, that Abbott was doing this this early? A little bit. You know, I think, you know, you're right about the numbers. I mean, they're getting better, but they're not good yet. And, you know, we are at something of a lull We've got this, you know, exuberance, whether it's rational or not, about, you know, we've got three vaccines now. The vaccination rate has picked back up, but that's compared to a week when we had a freeze and nobody could leave their home. So, you know, um, we're not out of the woods yet. You know, some I saw somebody said that the governor spiked the football on the 30 yard line. And I'm, I'm not sure that's a bad analogy. Um, we might be in great shape by the end of May, you know, when the administration says they will have delivered enough doses for all of the adults, but it's not May yet. And, you know, the governor's risking the same kind of result he got last June. If you remember when we first started this exercise, somewhere in the third or fourth week of March, the governor imposed restrictions by the end of April of last year, he started lifting those um, restrictions like he's doing now. And, by June and July, we had a real surge that at that time was the record surge. It went back down again after some things were imposed. We had a flat spot in September, October, and then we had another surge that was the worst one yet that ran from mid-October or so into January and February. So, you know, we're coming out of 
really nasty numbers, some particularly bad situations in places like El Paso. And I thought that if he was going to throw off some orders that he would probably give local governments more power to control things locally. If, for example, you get a hot spot here or a hot spot there, and I'm surprised he didn't do that. And I think the, the risk here, the roll of the dice for the governor is that the news will continue to be good on COVID and he, you know, this thing won't snap up in his face. I got to also point out that this was a convenient change of subject. You know, the governor's been getting hammered over the state's response to the blackouts and, and the bad weather of February. And this, this, you know, found Abbott able to, at least for a minute, give us some good news or give what he thought was some good news. Yeah, I will admit that I was surprised too. And because I, you know, I actually wagered someone a Popeye's chicken sandwich that this was not going to be what the, uh, what Abbott's announcement was yesterday. So uh, I will admit to being caught off guard myself. I did not think he was going to be going this far so soon. Patrick, I mean, he did give his reasons, right? He acknowledged that we were not out of the woods, but he talked a little bit about how things are different now than than you know a year ago or, or or nine months ago in terms of what we know about the virus and things like that. Yeah, I mean, his rationale here is that we were in a we are in a complete quote completely different position. Um, than, you know, when he first had to issue statewide mandates, you know, nearly a year ago, you know, he pointed out, we now have, um, you know, quote, an abundance of PPP, uh, I'm sorry, PPE, personal protective equipment. Um, we have the ability to do over a hundred thousand tests a day. We have these medicines to treat coronavirus patients and keep them out of the hospital or, or you know, keep them in the hospital for not as long. Um, and that there's this wide awareness that Texans have about all the safety protocols, like, um, you know, social distancing, washing your hands and, and wearing a mask, even though it's obviously now not required statewide. Um, and but I think for him, the biggest thing here is and I think he said this was most important to him yesterday um, was his optimism that the vaccination process is going to continue to accelerate, um, you know, as of, uh, I believe, Monday. Uh, only just under 7% of Texans have been fully vaccinated. And so we still have a long way to go, but he is putting, um, you know, a lot of optimism in this idea that things are really going to pick up. He talked about how Texas will soon um, expand the categories of people eligible for the vaccine um, and how he could have an announcement on that as soon as this week. And so he is really, I think, um, you know, optimistic and betting that the vaccination rate is going to, you know, accelerate here in the coming weeks. Right. And, and some of this is, he would argue, I think, is not an argument that we don't need to wear masks anymore. It's that the government shouldn't make you wear masks anymore. Whether that is uh, helpful from a public health perspective, I think, is a big matter of debate. And we've heard from a lot of people, whether it's local health officials um, down by the border or in some of the big cities, or you know, even the head of the CDC came out today saying that she thought this was a bad idea. So, uh, you know, I think a, a, a strong level of disagreement, particularly among Democrats around the idea of this. But Patrick, I mean, one thing that you wrote about last night was how the, you know, Ab Abbott has been hearing a lot from Republicans in this party and a lot of pressure from, you know, uh, a certain, you know, critics in the GOP about, you know, how this should be something that should be moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about the, the politics of this? Yeah. So from the beginning of this pandemic or beginning of the kind of statewide response, to this pandemic in, in March of last year through today, 
I think has, has, you know, anyone who's watched Greg Abbott's governorship, you know, would agree that this has been kind of his uh, toughest stretch of criticism he's gotten from within his own party. There's no doubt that he's been at the center of intra-party debates in the past, uh, but they usually haven't, you know, included the level of open criticism and open disagreement uh, that the past several months have included. Um, you've had, you know, the rise of people like Shelley Luther, the Dallas salon owner who was jailed over her refusal to close her business due to coronavirus orders. You've had the election of Alan West, the Texas GOP chairman, uh, you know, who you know, has openly disagreed with Abbott on some of his coronavirus decisions. And then in, in the state legislature, you've had some Republican lawmakers who've just been willing to speak uh, you know, increasingly openly about um, their desire to rein in the governor's emergency powers as this pandemic has dragged on and Abbott has continued to make unilateral decisions. Um, and so I think he has really felt the heat um, from his right uh, over this, this nearly year-long period. And yesterday, to me, was his you know, most boldest move yet to basically answer those critics from within his own party. Um, you know, obviously he has also gotten a deluge of criticism um, from Democrats, uh, you know, as you pointed out, uh, Watkins. But if you look at his moves, especially yesterday, this is, you know, a governor who for now is betting um, that he needs to be more responsive uh, to the, the critics in his own party. Um, ahead of his reelection campaign in 2022, I think by all appearances, as he wrote in that story, um, he is, uh, you know, more concerned about shoring up his right flank for the primary in 2022 than he is um, about the general election in 2022. You know, there's a number from the latest University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll that um, also illustrates what he's doing with his voters. He looks pretty safe. Eighty two percent of Democrats think that it's more important right now to control the spread of the pandemic. But 72% of Republicans think it's more important to help the economy than to control the spread of the pandemic. So with, with his own audience, he looks like he's landing in a fairly safe spot. Right. Patrick, you touched on this a little bit, but I mean, even beyond just among Republicans, Abbott has enjoyed a pretty comfortable place a, and has been pretty broadly possible uh, popular in this state ever since he was elected. You know, he's always been kind of right at the top of the approval ratings of, of statewide officials and officials, you know, just across Texas. And it's been an interesting few weeks from him, though. Obviously, what happened yesterday has touched off a lot of emotions on both sides. You know, one thing that I really noticed was the people who were criticizing him about this from the right were, did not necessarily seem particularly placated by this. You know, it was a lot of kind of too late or you were forced to do this. A lot of people bringing up that CPAC uh, straw poll from, from over the weekend where, you know, you saw the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, with what, like something like 40% when Trump wasn't in the equation and, and you know, Abbott basically uh, a rounding error, you know, basically 0% if you rounded down. Uh, but then you also see all the grief he's caught in the past few weeks due to the storm, Ross. You, you mentioned this earlier, is, is, and some people have used, viewed this as an option and, or an effort to kind of change the subject here over, over what's been a, a pretty rough month for him. Uh, Ross, I mean, how would you assess his, his standing in the state right now, given all these things? And we'll, you know, one big question I have is, will he have all forgotten about this a year from now? 
Well, you know, we'll actually have a better read on that a little bit later. Our poll was in the field while the storm was going. So um, the question about that, you know, is still a little bit open. And next time we do a poll, we'll see if he slipped much. We do know that he has slipped uh, considerably during the last 12 months. You know, he was at a fairly high point in voter approval in April of last year. People were rallying around the governor. This is when the restrictions were due, when we were all talking about flattening the curve when we were still calling this the novel coronavirus. Um, And his numbers, uh, his approval and disapproval ratings on the job that he's doing steadily have fallen to the point where they are now. They're not, they're not bad right now, but they're not great. And there's a couple of things in the numbers that um, are, are kind of yellow lights for an incumbent governor. The one that really sticks out to me is, when you ask people in Texas, um, how is your personal financial situation and your family's financial situation compared to a year ago, only 18% say it's better than it was. In a previous poll a year earlier, it was 40%. And that's people basically registering their dissatisfaction with the way things are going. And I, I think, you know, those are the kind of, I, I don't think they're necessarily going off the cliff or anything like that, but I think those are potholes in the governor's path. Right. And I mean, it just it is true that a lot of people have been suffering in the state lately and not all of that is Abbott's fault, of course, although he is the head of the state government and and will take a lot of heat from it. But, you know, there were people people died in the storm recently. A lot of people, millions of people were without power. Uh, Thousands of people have lost family members due to the the pandemic. And then there is a very large group of people, particularly in communities of color, um, or low-income communities where they maybe don't have the luxury of working from home like we do or being able to get around in their own private car and things like that that uh, are going to be experiencing a lot of fear and concern because of this. And, you know, that that may not necessarily be reflected in the polls, but is, is certainly something that's being felt out there. All right. Well, Lee, I also want to talk about the eyes of Texas, but first let's take a break to hear from our sponsors. This week's TribCast is sponsored by Hog Foundation for Mental Health. We need to call attention to the links between racial injustice and mental health and to how racism undermines our collective well-being. Visit hogg.utexas.edu for more. And the Hobby School of Public Affairs at the University of Houston. Creative public policy at work for the world. Visit our Texas Policy and Politics 2021 for public opinion findings on a range of issues at uh.edu slash hobby slash TX 2021. All right. So for the last segment of this podcast, we'll be without Patrick, who had to run and talk about this on MSNBC, I believe. Um, but that's OK, because we have Kate here to talk about the eyes of Texas. For decades, it's been the tradition at football games for fans and athletes to put up their hook'em horns and sing the school song at UT, uh, the eyes of Texas. But lately that practice has become pretty controversial as students have noted its um, questionable origins and possible ties to racism, uh, leading members of the Longhorn band and also the football team to choose not to participate at the end of games. This has not been a broadly popular decision among alumni at UT and and Kate, you had a story this week highlighting some of the anger that that, that has provoked, uh, particularly among some donors. Can you tell us a little bit about the emails you saw and, and what the reaction has been? 
Yeah, so we actually put in a Freedom of Information Request Act back in late October, um, really after the Longhorn Band had said they couldn't play, uh, couldn't find enough um, students to play the song at the Baylor game. And so that the response and anger that we saw to that made us wonder, you know, what people were saying behind the scenes. And there was um, between June and late October of the hundreds of emails that were sent in to President Hartzell, you know, a vast majority of people were at first really pleading with Hartzell to keep the song and talking about the tradition and the years they've spent singing it. And as the season went on and, you know, every game seemed to bring up its own controversy or issue, um, the tone shifted and became much more angry and frustrated that, um, you know, Hartzell wasn't really forcing the students to not just sing the song, but kind of respect the traditions of the university. Um, and dozens of donors and alumni, you know, threatened to pull support monetarily for, um, for the, the school and the athletic program if, you know, there wasn't some kind of resolution and the song was not continued to not only be played, but to really be respected and, and celebrated the way they thought it should. Yeah, I mean, and, and some of those emails, I mean, let's let's be frank, were pretty alarming in the tone they took and, and the way they talk, particularly about the Black st students on the football team. I mean, some were just flat out racist. Some yeah. were uh, very dismissive of the concerns that were raised and things like that. You know, actually let's let's pause though really quickly and talk a little bit about the song i mean what do we know about the song and its origins and uh and and, and what is actually the university doing right now to explore this question so there's a lot of debate about the origins and you know right now the school is uh, set to next week release this report about the history um, they've created this committee of about 25 members of the UT community to go back, look at all the history of how the song came about, how it was written, how it became the school song, and kind of share that with the, the community. So Hartzell has been saying everyone can kind of get on the same page about the same set of facts. But, you know, the common issues that are raised with the song is that it was premiered at a campus minstrel show with blackface, which a lot of students take offense to. Um, you know, the tune is from the song I've been working on the railroad, which also has some kind of problematic racist history. And the phrase, the eyes of Texas comes from a saying from Robert E. Lee, who, you know, commanded the Confederate army. And so people have, a problem, students and um, athletes have had a problem, you know, celebrating this phrase and idea that came from a man who supported slavery. And so those have, are kind of the main top line things you hear people um, raise. And I think that I'm really looking forward to this report coming out next week to not only kind of better document it, but, um, you know, document how the tradition came to UT and became this tradition, came, became this like, really ingrained part of the, the community and the football team in particular um, to kind of see if there was, you know, racist ties in that way. Um, but those, you know, the, the minstrel show and its premiere is really the main thing that students have called out as a problem. 
Yeah, I, I I agree. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing this too because I, I I it does seem like the exact ties, how strong those ties are, and 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 what the origins of some of these things are, um, could be clear and and might be helpful in making that decision. But really, it seems to me like there's two issues here. There's there's one the, what we just talked about with the the song and is it racist how how problematic is it should the the school continue to sing it and things like that the other question is should these students these student athletes be required to sing it right what free speech rights do they have to choose to make their own decision about whether they find it offensive and then participate in this tradition you know should they be forced to participate in a petition you know it's 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 true that uh there are many black student athletes on the football team if they find this offensive uh you know are you violating their rights by by forcing them to put their horns up at the end of the game and and right. and, and participate but but right now the 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 team's new coaches stance is my understanding right that they will will be required to participate is that right yeah i mean when he was asked about it um he said you know this this song is our song and we will sing it proudly. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people thought that the controversy might really die down after he made those statements. Um, now I'm not so sure, frankly, given the response to the story this week um, and how outraged, you know, a lot of people were, you know, we saw even players on Twitter talking about, um, you know, threats that they received that um, alumni might have said, you know, we're not that, that they should look for jobs outside of Texas once they graduate if they're not willing to participate in the song. Um, and so it, I, I suspect that this will continue to be um, an issue. And maybe, you know, the report next week will provide some clarity that that you know, everyone can kind of figure out a way to live with it or decide you know, to reconsider keeping it the song um, if you know, the report finds details or things that people find particularly you know, problematic that they really can't live with. Um, but you, know, you mentioned the free speech issues of the black student athletes or anyone who doesn't wanna sing the song. And you know, even last season, the, the school struggled to figure out how to handle that. You know, at first they said the students wouldn't have to participate. Then halfway through the season, you know, the athletic director reversed course and said, yes, they had to stay on the field for it, um, even if they, you know, didn't want to. And so it continued to be an issue like that every game they they had to really grapple with. Um, and I, I do wonder, you know, how the next season is going to be um, as this continues to be an issue. Yeah, and it'll be really interesting to see how this affects a lot of different things in, in terms of support for the university. I mean, a lot of, as, as you mentioned, a lot of these folks who are angry were donors. Um, but then also, will, how will it, will it affect UT's ability to recruit football players to the school with, with the kind of outrage this is generating and, and uh, you know, how a lot of these football players feel about this? Uh, Ross, I mean, <laughs> I feel like we see this come up with universities, particularly when it's around football. I mean, this idea of traditions and, and firmly held, it really causes people to dig in and, and creates a big headache for, for the university officials. Well, plus they end up as binaries. I mean, you don't have any middle ground. You end up with, you know, do this or else. 
And part of the question here is, or else what? I mean, what are you going to do if I don't put the horns up and I'm a football player? Yep. And, you know, but I think you're right. I think, you know, um, I mean, you can go through a bunch of Texas schools, as you know, and say, well, this one is having this issue with a statue and that one's having an issue with the name of the university. And, you know, I mean, it goes on and on like this. And the way these get presented is without any middle ground. And I'm not sure there is middle ground, I should say, at, at the front. But you can't, you get in a position if you're one of the administrators or if you're trying to get something changed of whatever the result is, somebody um, with some either voice or some money is going to be deeply unhappy. You know, if you, if you keep the eyes of Texas going at Texas, you've got a bunch of pissed off students. And if you don't, you've got a bunch of pissed off donors. Um, there's probably some overlap, you know, on either side, but you know, that's the situation. If you take out the, the Sol Ross statue at Texas A&M, you're going to have a similar fight. If you take the name off of Sol Ross university, you're going to have a similar fight. Uh, there's a problem at Rice. I mean, this uh, goes on and on. I think part of the problem that they're having as a matter of politics is that if you solve something quickly, you get a lot of pain and then you get it over with. And if you solve something slowly and do long studies and reports and all of those kinds of things, you keep a question alive and an argument alive for going on. Where are we now? Nine or 10 months mm -hmm. into this fight. Um, so, you know, I, I think UT's, you know, made a long slog of it. Yeah, and your mentioning of the Sol Ross one is important because that is obviously something that's happening at an, at another school in my alma mater, AM. And and that is a situation where a, a statue that has been kind of at the center of campus, uh, something that has a lot of emotional significance to a lot of AM students. Um, Sol Ross, a former president of AM, but also fought for the Confederacy and and has a lot of uh, you know, violence against uh um uh communities of color in Texas in his history. And I, I thought it was really interesting, Kate, in your story that you mentioned that they had kind of done a review of this and reached the conclusion that if they got rid of that statue, it might have a short-term result um, in terms of fundraising, but probably not have a long-term. In other words, you would maybe really anger some people right away, but eventually people would kind of turn back because it's their alma mater and, and, and get over it. I mean. UT has not made that same kind of calculation, at least at least for now, though, right? Right. No, that would. I mean, that um, survey was done with a group of you know a bunch of different booster groups at A and M to get their their take on how they thought this would impact donations. And I also found that por portion to be really interesting and very candid um, for the university to kind of put that out there. Um, but, you know, in that report, the boosters, as you said, you know, said a short term impact, but the long term, you know, uh, most alumni are looking for the university and are going to stand by a university if they end up doing the right thing. And so I think, um, you know, they were signaling that even if people in the, some people in the short term might be unhappy with a decision in the long term, you know, it kind of the arc will kind of bend back to people still kind of throwing their support behind a university in the long term. Yep. Well, you know, I, I was once uh, in, in your job, Kate, I was once the, the higher ed reporter for the Texas Tribune. And one of the big conclusions that I went away with from being in that beat is that things related to college football just kind of removed the, the sanity from conversations at, at Texas universities. And uh, 
they may have one way of handling everything else when it's related to camp campus controversies or issues of speech and all those kinds of things. But when you put football in, you, you get a larger group of people interested in the discussion and it really just, you know, lights a fire under it and, and makes it much more complicated and difficult for university officials to handle. Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah. It'll be very interesting to watch how this plays out. I think that just about does it for us this week. Thank you to Kate, Patrick, and Ross. Thank you to Todd, our producer. And thank you to our sponsors who are Lone Star College, the Texas Dental Association, the Hogg Foundation for Mental Health, and the Hobby School of Public Affairs. We'll be back next week. Do I have to talk you